Welcome back to the Not Rich Yet podcast, where we discuss all things money, entrepreneurship, and leadership to help you uncover opportunities to build wealth in ways that are meaningful to you. I'm your host, Jasmine Suknanen. I'm a financial journalist, and I have over six years of experience in the media industry. It's been a really busy month so far. I'm actually moving, so in between work, the podcast, and everything else, I've just been packing and ironing out some logistics, like canceling my Wi-Fi service, changing my renter's insurance, and a bunch of other things like that. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take the time to remind everyone to subscribe to the show and leave a rating. It really helps other podcast lovers discover the show. So in a way, you're doing me a favor and future listeners a favor by subscribing and rating. Now, on to today's episode. Today's guest has an extremely impressive resume. Her name is Amodi Vera Singer, and in the past, she started a nonprofit organization, worked as a social media coordinator and operations manager. And even more mind-blowing, she once received an offer to be a company chief marketing officer when she was just 26 years old. Amodi's work lies at the intersection of marketing and compliance for fintech companies. Compliance meaning any aspects that deal with important external regulations pertaining to fintech services. She's now the CEO of her own marketing agency called HCL Designs. Amodi, welcome to the show. Jasmine, thanks for having me. Of course. We have, I feel, so much to jump into because when we did our intro call, we touched on a lot of different things, um, all within the realm of career and career progression. So I think that would be a really good place for us to start our conversation. Uh, Could you take our listeners through what your career journey has been like so far? What was that first job you had after you graduated from college? And uh, how did you get to where you are now? Absolutely. So I was that quintessential college kid that didn't know what I was going to do once I graduated. I graduated from Williams College with a degree in English, and everybody was like, what are you going to do with that? Um, And I actually wasn't sure I majored in English because I felt that it was really important to be an excellent communicator. And I'm not a strong writer, so I figured if I'm going to pay a quarter of a million dollars for an education, I might as well learn how to write in the process. Right after college, I actually founded a nonprofit in Korea, in South Korea, where I helped uh, underserved youth uh, who could not afford private uh, English classes to learn conversational English. And then once I returned back to the U.S., um, I had the opportunity to work for an early stage startup that focused on uh, democratizing wealth uh, for individuals and educating them on financial literacy and stock trading. So I started out as a social media coordinator because I think the mindset was like, you're a millennial, you should know how to use social media. Uh, Fun fact, uh, I did not have any social media accounts. I only had Facebook and then I had to learn on the job. And then while I was in this space, uh, I got introduced to, you know, the startup world, like what does fundraising look like? Uh, How do you beta test an app? And then I really got curious about growth marketing and how you build audiences uh, for a product that doesn't even exist and get people and investors excited about it. Um, And I really love that storytelling element. But I also really loved the visual journey and the user experience that someone goes through when engaging with digital platforms. And so I am a self-taught UI UX designer as well as a developer. And that's how I really started off my career. And I got fairly good at this. And then at the age of 26, I was offered the golden handcuffs. I was offered a CMO position. Uh, and a mid six-figure salary. Not bad, right? Uh, And so uh, that was a real wake-up call for me. It was one of those moments is like, do I go down this path and do I 
you know, live a very comfortable life. And I'm a big fan of listening to your gut. I'm a big Oprah fan. So listen to your gut. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like my story and it didn't feel authentic to me. So, you know, tech is very sexy, lots of money thrown in tech. I wanted to see if I could replicate my success in growth marketing in another space and something that really aligned with my heart, which is um, education and offering more opportunities to those who are underserved. So I had the fortunate opportunity of working for the Shanti Bhavan's Children's Project, an excellent nonprofit that takes children from the age of four through the ages of 17. It gives them a holistic education. And these individuals, their children, these children come from family backgrounds. Um, their parents earn less than two US dollars a day. And I really had the opportunity, especially during COVID when they lost most of their funding to really revamp their fundraising model, their digital marketing, and uh, be their global operations manager. Um, and that's when I realized I really had an aptitude to get people excited about a cause. And in this case, it was Shanti Bhavan's mission. Uh, in the past, it was you know a tech app that was revolutionizing uh, you know stock trading. And I thought, I want to do this for myself. Um, I had some financial goals, some personal financial goals, and I also wanted more flexibility um, because my current my job uh, was requiring me to be out of the country anywhere from you know four months out of the year, eight weeks, um, which wasn't uh, feasible for me long term, and um, and that's when I decided to start my company. I was still working full time. I had a lovely boss who was very supportive of the endeavor in October. 27th, I, 2021, I did, uh, wrote an LLC agreement, uh, paid the nice fee, and then uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. So for three months, I just sat on it and I accepted my first client in February of 2022, earned uh, a whopping $300 uh, my first month. Uh, what it made me realize is that if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I have to do it. I wanted to do it with integrity. I wanted to build a company and culture that not just was lip service saying value employees. I wanted to create a culture where it was normal to be a parent and a, a career person um, and a place where, you know, people felt compensated for their work. And that really helped me build a team under me that, you know, we weren't even earning that much money that people were like, hey, I want to be a part of this. And then we started working, we started with general marketing, helping companies and uh, businesses grow their websites, uh, social media presence, all of that. And then what I realized was I had all this knowledge on financial technology and regulatory tech. And then you know, I follow a lot of the news that's happening with the investment space and, you know, watching a lot of these fintech companies getting slammed uh, with fines. And I'm like, if only their marketer worked better with their compliance officer, imagine what could happen. Uh, so I decided to refocus my business to work on financial technology companies and help them with their growth marketing. And I call it compliance conscious marketing. Uh, educating founders that, you know, you, not only do you need to focus on the regulatory aspect of tech, you also need to be mindful of how you position yourself in the marketplace. And is it authentic? Is it honest? Uh, because sometimes marketing can be dishonest. And how can you build trust with an audience and build trust with regulators to say that, hey, I'm doing the right thing? And that's how our business kind of took off. Um, and my ultimate goal is I would love to be an angel investor and an early round investor in uh, women-owned tech companies. So that's the big dream. So I know we're only in year one of the business, but I'm already thinking about year five, year 10, year 15. So that's a little bit of more about my career journey. That's amazing. So you went from studying English to now operating in a space where you are combining skills in uh, regulatory tech and marketing. Yes, uh, I'm a bit of, uh, I believe that you can carve a space for your interests. Um, I've never been one that did well in fitting in a box. So I created 
something that was unique to my skill set and also got other people excited and also added value. I love the way you put that because I also consider myself someone who finds it difficult at times to fit myself into a box. And I think that, you know, even with the way social media has progressed over the years, a lot of what we were seeing at first was this encouragement to fit yourself into a box, right? I used to uh, have a blog back in like 2015, I started it and I was doing the whole social media journey thing, uh, posting online consistently, trying to grow an audience, working with brands and things like that. And one of the biggest ways we were constantly being told that, you know, if we wanted to grow our audience, we needed to niche down. We needed to find one thing we are good at and post about it consistently because it gave our audience members something to, you know, like something to know they can count on us to post consistently about. And I think that for me personally, I know this has worked for so many people, but for me, I think I really struggled with that a lot because I, I couldn't just fit myself into a box. I had so many interests, so many things that I was good at talking about and so many, not so much knowledge and spaces I wanted to expand on for others that it was just not a great strategy for me personally. And I think now uh, the younger generation is definitely normalizing being that multi-passionate person. They're definitely normalizing the fact that, hey, we all are interested in more than one thing. It's possible to be good at more than one thing professionally. I absolutely agree. Um, I think the way I've kind of approached my career is I have to also look at the practicality of it, right? Like I love organizing, but will I be a professional organizer? <laughs> Probably not. Um, and I wanted to find something that would help me build generational wealth for my family and, you know, my children and my community um, rather. And for me, I wanted to make that impact in a really quick way and financial technology and marketing was my fit. But I do think like when I talk to individuals, not only am I talking about like, oh yes, this is like FinTech regulation and this is how you can market it appropriately. I'm also talking to them about like, hey, how did I go from like side hustle to seven figures. Um, what are some mistakes I made in the business world that I can share? And then sometimes people will be like, hey, you're a business coach. And it's one of those things where I'm realizing that I can share my skill sets and my passions with other people without necessarily defining myself um, or labeling myself. I love that. And speaking of mistakes, was there anything along your journey that you think you could have done differently looking back? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the first is uh, ask for help. Uh, starting a business uh, is a mammoth size effort, whether it's as small as, you know, starting a dog walking business or your, you know, seed funding, like raising seed funding, right? It doesn't matter you do need a community that can support you. Um, so I would say that I didn't, it's not that I didn't have the community. I just didn't ask for help. I think I've been traditionally labeled as a high performer and there's this myth about high performers, which is not a myth about <laughs> myth to me because I actually, you know, fall into that stereotype where it's like, I can figure it out on my own. Uh, but I wish I leaned on my community, you know, um, asking for business advice early on, uh, letting people know that I have a business. There's something about like starting a business, especially as a woman of color, that you're just like, oh, let me get it all perfect and then let everybody else know. Um, and I wish I told more people because I would have gotten more clients, um, right? Also fighting that imposter syndrome when you have a community they can help you overcome it because they can be like, this is a story that you're telling yourself. 
this is not the reality. Like, come on, get on with it. So definitely, I really wish I had a community. I also wish that I had my operations set up really well. So by operations, what I mean is a lot of it's in my head. Like I think really, really fast, um, which is great. But if you have a team working under you, um, your team can't read your mind. Um, and so I was always about like, let's get the next deal. Let's like try this new product. And my team's like, we're trying to figure out how to launch the first product, not like the second or third one that you were thinking of. So I wish I had invested uh, in my COO much earlier in the process because having a partner like a COO was really instrumental in outlining our operations, uh, really thinking about like customer onboarding, hiring, um, what does our company culture look like? Um, so I think those are the two main things. And I think finally, just learn how to delegate. Like as a business owner, you want to hustle. You want to be involved. It's your baby. I get it. I'm that person. I have, I have the desire to control everything. But the real reality is if you're going to scale, you got to let go. And I, I wish I'd re recognized my zone of genius early on and let my team find their zone of genius so that they can also thrive in other areas of the business that are my weaknesses. So now I exclusively hire for my weaknesses and people who can challenge me because that's the only way I'm going to grow. So those are my three. And hopefully somebody learns something from them. Yeah, for sure. It It also definitely sounds like it can take a while to really hone in on all of those aspects. And just in thinking about the career journey you shared with us, I'm trying to just imagine like how quickly you needed to grow all of your skills um, in order to like get to that place where you were being offered, for example, a CMO job. So like what, what was your strategy for learning on the job, learning more and learning quickly? So I was always fortunate that I was in a work environment that I, where I wasn't siloed into just my job description. I think that was the benefit of working for an early stage company. And I just didn't demand a seat at the table. I brought in my own chair and sat at the damn table, uh, mainly because I didn't have tech background. I didn't have a finance background. Like I still count on my fingers. Like that's the type of math I do. So it was one of those things that if I wanted to be heard and seen, I had to be visible. And, and that meant being physically visible on emails, meetings, and also just asking, hey, can I be a part of that meeting? Hey, you're going to see that client. Could I just sit in on that call just to hear how you have that conversation? Then I also asked for mentors. Um, I had a really good friend who was a master at you know, managing mentors. And I'm like, what is mentorship? Teach me this. Uh, how can I build these relationships? And I was just proactive. If there was something I didn't know or understand, I had a notebook. I always tell my mentees uh, coming out of college, have a career journal, you know, just have it with you and just write down everything, like things that you don't understand, management styles that you like, management styles that you don't like, and you don't want to replicate when you're a manager, because that art of writing it down and reflecting really helps you understand. So grab a seat at the table, demand it, ask, just ask for opportunities. Even if like people aren't, I was always that kid that used to wait for somebody to be like, good job, Amodi. Would you like to come and do this with me? That does not happen in the workplace unless you ask for that. So just ask for opportunities and don't be afraid to learn things. Like I didn't know how to code. I didn't know how to do UI UX design, but I signed up for a course um, over a weekend, just learned how to do it, fell in love with it. And then the next time the opportunity came, I didn't even ask permission. I was like, hey, let me re-edit that design for you. And they're like, how do you know how to do this? And I'm like, because I, I'm interested in this, I'm committed, I want to learn. So if you have that curiosity, most of the time, 
like I hear people say like, I really want to figure out my next step in my career or like my next path, but people aren't just giving me the opportunity. And in my experience, people are not going to give you the opportunity. You just got to demand it for yourself. Absolutely. I think there is definitely something to be said for taking that initiative. And I can even tell you from my own experience, my biggest career jumps and the ways that I've made the most career progress in my career is from taking that initiative. It's from, you know, raising my hand and saying, I'm going to X, Y, and Z, I'm a great person to fill this role or fill this gap for you. Right. Absolutely. And I also think like, this is something that I wish I'd done more of. I was so concerned about like being seen as valued and able to have a seat at the table. I didn't always advocate for my compensation for the additional skills that I'm learning. Um, So that's something if I had to redo, I'm like, yes, I can do UI, UX design. I'd be happy to take on these projects what does my salary compensation look like? I love that as well, because I feel like right now, especially so many of us, um, you know, Gen Zers, millennials, we are having these conversations where we are reimagining what, um, you know, salary versus uh, workload should look like for us, Mm -hmm. because For so many people, um, especially members of the older generation, they've had to take on so much work that essentially has been seen as almost invisible. And even though it was a lot of work that they put in, they were not adequately compensated for that at all. Absolutely. And one of the things that I share with my mentees when they're negotiating is like, sometimes I do get a candidate who is like, I'm worth like, you know, $250,000. And I look at their resume and I look at their experience and they're, you know, 21, 22 years old. And I, and I'm like, but where, where is it reflected? And they name drop a big school that they went to. Uh, It's like, this is why I deserve 250K. Um, This was actually a real example. (laughs) That's why I have that number in my head. And like, what I told them was, show it to me in six months. If you can do this work, like show me your 250. Like I can, I can't start you off there, but show it to me. So I think there has to be a little bit of a give and take, like advocate for yourself, but, you know, bring the goods to justify it as well. Don't drop a big name school. Nobody cares. (laughs) I love that piece on just advocating for yourself and for your skills even. And I think that right now it kind of feels like we're going through this reshuffling a little bit in terms of career where so many people are realizing that the career that they thought they wanted is maybe no longer for them, right? And the pandemic may be responsible in part for that at least, like maybe the schedule that they thought worked well for them just no longer works well for the lifestyle values they've adopted since the pandemic. So in terms of that reshuffling where maybe people are trying to go into spaces where they do not previously have experience, how might you recommend they create a plan to advocate for the skills that they do have? So I can speak from personal experience. Um, You know, I'm not a trained teacher. I'm not a trained nonprofit fundraiser. But when I pivoted into the nonprofit space, one of the things that I did was, again, I had my journal, my work journal, taking notes on everything. I first actually learned from others who had been in the space, uh, really observing like how they approach a problem, how they negotiate uh, certain spaces, how, what's the culture like in this organization? Um, how do you build social capital? Because that's, that's the key. If you can build social capital with your manager, with your peers, 
you can get very far. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I learned uh, early on in my career is my aunt told me, make your manager look good and a good manager will always bring you along for the ride um, and even push you higher than they are. Um, and so that's what I did. I first understood my gaps, learned from others, and it took about three to four months. And then once I really got comfortable, then I started ruffling a bit of feathers, you know, asking for opportunities. I noticed their social media wasn't as robust as it could be. It's like, I have this experience, I'd love to jump in. I had experience, you know, speaking with investors and uh, CEOs of corporations. So when they were having major donors come onto their campus, I was like, let me take lead on this because I know how to negotiate with them. I know how to make them feel comfortable. Let me take this on. So I think the first component is build trust with the organization that you are willing to learn from them and not just going to speak at them because then you get that mutual respect. So when you do suggest something that is off the cuff or you don't have the experience, like I didn't have experience in nonprofit fundraising, but when I suggested a strategy, I'm like, can we try this? I guess it's that social capital. It's like, well, Amodi cares about the organization. She won't put it at risk. So let's give it a shot. So that would be my suggestion, right? Build that social capital. And even if you don't have the skill set, once you can advocate for yourself uh, from that point onwards. That's an amazing point. I think that, and once again, it kind of goes back to that earlier point on taking initiative, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, taking initiative. And initiative can also look like finding yourself a sponsor within the organization, right? Um, or, you know, somebody who can advocate for you. And those little moments of building a network, like those water cooler conversations matter, <laughs> you know? It's just like, people need to know that you're, you're somebody who's a hard worker, but has their back. And then they will be willing to try things and give you more opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten. Absolutely. And that kind of makes me think of this book I read um, last year. It's called uh, The Myth of the Nice Girl. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's written by Fran Hauser, who she has such an impressive career. Um, she started in media herself. She was a media executive um, at Time Inc. And right now she is actually an angel investor, mm -hmm. um, but she's written two books. And her first book, The Myth of the Nice Girl, um, you know, it touches a lot on that aspect of building meaningful relationships and like leveraging your, I guess, you know, self-proclaimed status as somebody who is nice, somebody who is easy to have those conversations with someone who is approachable and, you know, makes themselves available to take on the things that maybe nobody else wants to take on or take on the things that people are too scared to try for themselves. And her entire book was just her explaining how, you know, those case studies, real life examples of how in her career, being that person has always led to her getting the promotions, being considered for, you know, executive roles, being able to pivot into another industry where she had not necessarily had that traditional track record for doing the work, but was still able to be successful there. Absolutely. And I think I want to be careful about like, so like when I speak about social capital, because I think sometimes women in particular get this label that you kind of need to be the nice girl in order to progress in your career. I think you need to be respected. And I don't think being respected always comes with like being aggressive and being um, rude. I think you can be assertive and you can be, you can be kind, but assertive. You can give 
constructive feedback. You don't always need to sugarcoat things. Um, so that's something that I'm always like careful about is like, I'm just not going to be nice for the sake of being nice. Like if one of my direct reports, I don't agree with, or if there's a client that I don't agree with, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't apologize if I don't have to. But one thing that I can do is being like, I am really sorry you feel that way. However, this does not align with my company. So therefore, I don't think this is the right relationship right now. Um, I don't need to cuss. I don't need to, you know, slander them. I don't need to be, I don't need to like be aggressive about it, but I can be firm. And I think that's also part of being the nice girl. I agree. And I think that even in so many ways, being that firm person is way more powerful than being that aggressive person. 100%. I think that people might not always see it that way, but, you know, in, in terms of aggression, and I've heard this story played out over and over again with many other professionals where, you know, they needed to get something done. There was this intermediary person who they needed to go to in order to get that thing done, but they decided they wanted to be impressive. They wanted to show that they can get it done quicker than anybody else. They wanted to take on that more aggressive approach to getting things done their way. So they went above that person's head to get things done. And then it doesn't work out for them. And then the next time they need to go to that person to get things done, that person doesn't want to help them. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd love to kind of switch gears a little bit to talking a little bit more about career planning. How can ambitious, you know, people, ambitious professionals start to design a career path in a way that allows them to get to use the skills that are truly their strengths while also working on things that they personally value? I think you got to find your inner compass, right? What are the key things that matter to, to you? And for me, that is my faith. I'm a very religious person. Uh, my faith keeps me grounded. Um, and it's kind of like my guiding compass. Then it's my family. I, I want to be there for my family because at the end of this I don't want accolades from other people like I want my family to know that you know they were loved uh, by me and I was loved by them and I also want to advance um, you know marginalized individuals give them more opportunities especially in education and also um, help them gain more wealth more status and so those are my guiding principles. And once I kind of understood my guiding principles, I was able to let go of the other distractions, right? Um, and really start focusing on like what really matters to me and is what I'm doing right now in alignment with my core principles. Um, and that was kind of like the snowball effect. Um, and then afterwards, I, I did an audit actually of all my like skill sets. And that's why having that little work journal helped because it's like, I could see all my past successes, my past failures, what I really enjoyed. And the main thing is I wanted more flexibility. I wanted to make a crap ton of money. And at the same time, I wanted to bring up some people with me. And the way I could do that was build by building my own company. And, and I think for anybody who, wants to advance their career just have a date with yourself honestly like once a quarter just being like am I in alignment with my principles and if not make some changes it's okay I love that so much um I I think that if there is one thing people should do after listening to this episode if there is just one action they should take I really do think it's to get that notebook like you said and 
start writing things down. <laughs> Absolutely. Like a career journal is one of the, it's like people don't do it very often, but it's been instrumental. For sure. And I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea of reshuffling in terms of career, um, which we are seeing a lot more of right now. And I think a lot of times a little bit of that uh, transitioning can come with risk, whether you're, you know, you've, whether you've been at the same company for like the last 10 years, and this is your first time putting yourself out into the job market, or you're deciding you're going to make the switch from being an employee to being a business owner, you know, it all comes with some level of risk. And so I was curious, how do you uh, personally weigh that level of risk? And how do you decide when taking on a certain career risk will be worth it and will have that positive outcome that you're looking for? Absolutely. So I come from an entrepreneurial family and I saw the risks, the ups and downs of business. And I I saw what happened when a business fails, how it impacted me, how it impacted my family, right? And so when I started my entrepreneurial journey, I actually spoke to my husband um, because, again, he's my partner. He's my um, he's part of my community, my tribe. Um, and I wanted not that I needed his permission, but it was going to be a financial. You know, you know at the time I was like, well, I I could lose all our money. So <laughs> it was very important that that there were funds set aside to take care of our family. And we had that money set aside. And that was something I was not willing to compromise on. But other risks that I was willing to take was leaving my full-time job that paid me really well. Um, Going and bidding for contracts that I had no business bidding for, because I was like, if I'm going to go big, I'm going to go big. Like I'm going to go and bid for enterprise um, clients. I also had to think about like the fine, it's mostly financial risk, right? So you have your finances and then you have your time. And what I told myself is like, I'm not going to be one of those entrepreneurs who lives and breathes their business. I want I don't want that to be that. So one of the things I negotiated with myself is if you're going to do this, like maybe you're working six days a week, but Sundays you have off, like you just don't do anything. It's time for you. It's time for you to like spend time with like the people that will fill you up and, you know, you know, help you rejuvenate. And I think when I'm thinking about risk, um, I pray. Um, and I honestly give myself time to think because sometimes I tend to have the tendency to like want to make a decision really fast. Um, but I think some of like the best decision makers in the world, like you think like they spend time with themselves and really think about it's like, let me, let me sit on this a bit. And sometimes a bit might be like, I just wait a day. Like the world's not going to end in a day. Um, at least my world's not going to end in a day. <laughs> so that's the biggest thing. It's just like, I, I consult my, my community. And then I also sit with it myself and really weigh on it. And if it, if it disrupts any of my core principles, then I'm like, Hey, maybe let's take it. Like I had to recently make a decision, right? Do we take on another client? And I could sense from this conversation that I was having with this client Yes, did I need their money? A hundred percent. But I also saw that they had this attitude that was very like demanding and entitled. And I was like, what's the impact that's going to have on my very young team? Not young, meaning like they're age young, but like we as a company are just one year old. It's like, I don't want to demoralize them to think like, wow, this is going to be the history of our, like my future here, because it's, like these are the type of clients we're getting. So I I sat on it and I had to be like, you know, thank you very much for, you know, considering us, but I have to rescind our proposal because we just don't have the bandwidth. And am I going to take a financial loss for that? Yes. 
Is my team going to be happier? And am I going to build the culture and the company I want? Absolutely. That's amazing. I really love how value-driven you are when you're operating in this space. I feel like that's something that a lot of individuals have not really had the opportunity to really showcase for themselves, especially if they've worked in a certain type of environment for much of their career. A lot of times the value can really get lost um, for for, uh, the betterment of advancing business and revenue goals. Right. Absolutely. I I think that's the beauty of starting my career off in a startup uh, because there were some days that it was just grueling. And I remember reading this. I don't know who it was from Facebook, but this guy wrote the best year for Facebook was the worst year of my life. <laughs> um, and that really sat with me. It's like at the end of the day, like, what do I want to be known for? Um is it that, oh, she closed like a hundred million, like hundred million dollar deal? Or, you know, did she create a culture where people felt valued and excited to come to work and also felt like they could um, have a balance in their life? Like the latter is more exciting to me. Yeah. And so how do you figure out what your values are? I feel like it sounds like both a small question, but also like a really big, somewhat existential question too. Um, because I, I don't know, it, I think that a lot of, especially younger people who are still in college or who are just now entering the workforce are kind of combating this a little bit. Like, how do I know what I care about? Um, especially if you are younger and just have not had as many experiences in life yet? I mean, my answer to that is live life, create experiences, (laughs) you know? I think like, I hear a lot of people saying like, I'm looking for like my purpose, what drives me, et cetera. And they spend a lot of time watching like somebody else's life on YouTube or Uh, reading books about other people, which is fine. But unless you go and experience it for yourself, how are you going to know if that's what your life's purpose is? Um, So, you know, I I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I get inspired by reading memoirs. Uh, I love hearing TED Talks, etc. But then if something really excites me, I'm like, how how can I put this into practice? How can I really know that is this excitement and it's just a phase or is this my calling? And you will never know unless you experience it. And I feel like most of the time, you know, and I used to do this when I was younger. It's like, oh, I don't like my job. I don't do like, this is not fun. Like I don't have any purpose. But then I wasn't also exploring other things that were meaningful to me. So Once you start living life and creating experiences for yourself, you'll be able to narrow down on what's important to you. And I, and I think it's, it's a really good idea to spend time with yourself, like to really spend time and not be, and just like not be distracted and just being like, what matters to me when I'm not being influenced by other things? Sure. And to your point on, you know, watching other people's experiences on, you know, a lot of these platforms, I, I kind of feel like social media has been a little bit of a window into professional opportunities as well. And maybe you'll agree with this too, but I feel like I've seen so many TikTokers who will post what their day in a life is like working in a certain industry or post about what it's like to have a specific type of job that maybe a lot of people haven't heard about. So I guess my question to you is just how, from your perspective, how is social media kind of changing the landscape of what career opportunities Gen Zers and millennials feel they can have? I think 100% the 
social media is opening more doors, opening more career opportunities, normalizing careers that otherwise would, would be overlooked, right? Where I draw a line and caution is that it's top of the funnel. You know, if somebody's doing a day in the life, they're going to show you the best aspects of their day. You know, some people, when they wake up, I'm like, you really, you look like that when you wake <laughs> up? Uh, <laughs> I think social media, you should see as a gateway for opportunities, for exploration, but it's not reality. And I think, as, and I can say this as a social media marketer, because sometimes I'm creating these false realities for my clients, right? Um but I think the key is these opportunities do exist, but just as like wonderful as they are, there are the drawbacks of any profession. Like, yes, I get to shed, like as an entrepreneur, I get to set my own company culture. I get to set my own schedule, et cetera. But at night, I'm just like, if like certain invoices aren't paid, I'm like looking at like, oh my God, how, gonna, how am I going to pay the bills? Like what happens when I have a meeting lined up and my dog needs to go to the vet unexpectedly? Like, how do I negotiate that? So I would say opened opportunities, but take it with um, as a grain of salt, you know, um, that would be my takeaway. Absolutely. And just to kind of wrap things up, I want to talk a little bit about flexibility in terms of your career path and just in terms of anyone's career path, really. So I went to my very first conference was way back when I was like a college sophomore Mm -hmm. and it was geared towards, you know, women who wanted to be in the media industry, media and communications. And one of our keynote speakers was actually Andy Dorfman. And so she was a contestant on The Bachelor for a season and then also went on to be The Bachelorette the following season. Um, And she was actually one of the most popular bachelorettes in all of the show's history. She was a lawyer before Mm -hmm. she went on the show. And, you know, since doing the show, her career has kind of progressed into a place where she is now an author of multiple books. She's doing a lot of speaking engagements and things like that. And one of the biggest things she taught us is to, from her ideology, is to just throughout your five-year career plan, right? She talked about how her career did not at all go the way she thought it was. She thought she would, you know, continue to be a lawyer for the rest of her life. And, you know, she became a reality TV star, became an author, did all of these things. And her parting advice for us as a room full of like 1000 plus college aged women trying to get into the media industry was to, you know, don't be so rigid in your career plan that you say no automatically to a bunch of different opportunities that could take you places where you never thought they would. So I'm curious, like, do you feel like your career plan has aired on that side of being a rigid five-year plan or have you more aired towards the flexible side? And what are your pieces of advice for either one? Mine's definitely more flexible uh, to jump industries as much as I did before <laughs> the age of 30 is uh, is a little unheard of because um, I went from startup, finance, tech, nonprofit, marketing, all of those. <laughs> um, I would say just it's okay to have a plan, right? It's okay to like set something out. But when opportunities present itself, it's okay to deviate from that plan, right? And and I would say my advice is be open to opportunities. Um, Don't be afraid of advocating for yourself. And also don't be afraid of hard work because I think it's very easy for somebody like me uh, to sit here one year into my business, having exceeded all of my revenue targets and being like, look at me now. (laughs) Um, But what's unspoken about was 
all the challenges that happened, you know, the, the days when I couldn't pay the bill, uh, the day that I had to send an email to one of my team members being like, hey, you're not, I know you were counting on this paycheck. It's not coming. Um, having a client write a nasty email to you because like, it's not like your company didn't perform the way they expected and not having those moments discourage you, but to use that as a, just strengthen you so that you can continue to go. And that's hard work. Um, I've been declined for promotions. Uh, I have been overlooked for opportunities and things like that. And it's just one of those things where use that discouragement to fuel you and like you can write your own story if you're willing to work hard for it. I love that. That is a fantastic place to end. Amodi, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. Tell us, where can we find you online? Absolutely. So you can find me online at hcldesigns.com. Uh, and that's where you, know, you can learn about a bit about me, my company. And, uh, you know, for somebody who it's really big on social media growth. I'm not active on social media platforms, but feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And I would love, I love having coffee chats. I love learning about other people's stories. So slide into my LinkedIn DM. Amazing. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Not Rich Yet podcast. Hit the subscribe button to Spotify or Apple or whatever platform you normally listen on knows that you enjoyed this podcast and so I know you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you're keeping up with us on Instagram so you can be the first to know when a new episode airs. We also post some resources that you can use along your wealth building journey. We're on Instagram as at notrichyetpod and if you want to give me a follow too, I will not say no to that. I'm on Instagram as at thejasminesue, T-H-E-J-A-S-M-I-N-S-U. I do all the planning and sourcing and emailing and interviewing, but this podcast couldn't happen without a few extra hands. Not Rich Yet is produced by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and edited by Will Tarashak, founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and the founder of Willie T Productions. I'm your host, Jasmine Sucknanen, and I'll be back with more next week.